Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen, your host, along with Megan Powell. You know, the past few years have been like a story that's unfolding. One that's bound to be told again and again and again for generations to come. I can hear it now. It was the year 2020, and a great sickness swept through the land, erasing the world that we knew. Of course, our adventure is far from over. Though I do suspect we've at least come to the middle, a place where we can finally begin putting down the words that will begin a personal retelling of a plot that changed the world. And that will be the theme of the podcast this year, a knitting together of individual experiences, each story, another stitch in the weave of a tapestry yet to be revealed. We begin with none other than Kina McGregor, who really needs no introduction. And none I could give would probably do her any justice. But I'll try my best. If you practice yoga or are even just on Instagram, you probably have heard of Kino McGregor. Kino has over 20 years of experience in Ashtanga yoga. She's the author of four books, founder of OMSTARS, the world's first yoga TV network, and co-founder of Miami Life Center with her husband, Tim Feldman. And that's just the condensed version of Kino's many achievements. One might say this is because of her drive, her focus, and perseverance, and certainly that plays a big part. I mean, how many of us have created our own TV network, even when people turn the idea down? My first workshop I ever took with Kino was in Washington, D.C. about six years ago. There are a few things I remember to this day. First, her core workout had me trembling and sore for days. I'm sure there are some of you that can probably relate. But what really struck me was there must have been easily a hundred people lined up to say thank you and to take a picture with her. And you know what? She was there for every single person, just casually sitting on the floor, cross-legged. No one was left out. She was not only kind, but generous with her time and attention, which is something that's actually kind of rare. And when you talk to Kino, it's like you've known her forever. You can go from a serious conversation to giggling in a matter of seconds. So when you meet her, watch any of her videos or read any of her books, it's so easy to see why she's a role model for so many of us practitioners and a leader within our global yoga community, not just because of her inspirational words, but because of her actions. In fact, it was Kino's steady online presence and balanced message that prompted us to reach out. As the world spun out of control, Kino never seemed to spin with it. And that gave us comfort. Well, first of all, thanks for acknowledging that. I really appreciate it. I, um, you know, uh, much like everyone else, when this all started, I didn't, I, I couldn't have imagined that we would be where we are now. Um, I remember going to Asia in February, March and coming back to Miami and thinking, wow, it's so nice to be in the U S where there's no coronavirus. And it was this feeling of, I don't know, uh, disbelief, uh, and a sense of just the unknown, I guess, you know, and a sense of maybe false, immunity and the sense of maybe even you could even say ignorance or hubris, depending on which, you know, which slice of that feeling one might take a look at. 
But I, I do remember very distinctly the feeling of being in Hong Kong where they were starting to take pandemic restrictions very seriously. And they were already uh, wearing masks and taking people's temperatures to get in and out. And I remember being in Singapore where it had been fine. And then suddenly they were requiring masks and taking temperatures and really regulating people's entries in and out of hotels and shopping centers. And then I remember, um, you know, uh, wearing the mask in Asia, but then when I connected back to the U.S., taking the mask off. And this feeling that I look back now and I can see was definitely um, not in alignment with what reality would be to come back and think, well, gosh, there's no way the U.S. will shut down. There's no way that Florida will shut down. I mean, I've lived in Florida my whole life and I just thought, you know, I lived in other places, but I always moved back and I grew up here. And, you know, um, Floridians don't really lock down. You know, there's a hurricane coming and people go to the beach and there's like no beach access. And they're like, yeah, let me see if there's some waves finally here. And then they, you know, so I just thought there's no way Florida's going to lock down. And, you know, we have uh, the, the type of government that is kind of anti-lockdown. And I just thought, you know, with the former president, that there was just no way that that the that the U.S. would lock down, but we did, and Florida did, and Miami's governor, Miami's mayor at the time, took it really seriously. But the feeling that I did have about Florida has kind of proven true after the fact. Um, you know, one of the things that our governor here in Florida says that he regrets is locking down. He says he wishes he never would have done that, and they has since passed a whole bunch of legislations that would prevent any future lockdown and has since passed a whole bunch of legislations that prevent mask mandates from governors, uh, sorry, from, from local governments like mayors and city councils and, you know, the board of education and things like that, and has made it illegal to ask for proof of vaccination or uh, COVID status for businesses and businesses can be fined for actually asking for your vaccination status or requiring that of, of clients or employees. So, what I was expecting of Florida then has actually come to fruition, but it just took some time. Now, there were a couple of really very pivotal things that happened, I would say, during that initial lockdown. And I think that everybody who was is, is old enough to have memories of that time will remember that for the rest of our lives. And there was something very, very, very special about being cut off from the hustle and bustle, from ha of having everything just stop. And then seeing who are you when everything is removed? You know, where do you go? And what do you do in that moment? And where do you turn towards? And what's left when all of the distraction of our life just suddenly disappears? When you're left with, you know, the walls around your home or your apartment or wherever you, wherever you find, um, you know, your living accommodations are. And who are you in that moment? And, you know, I think that I, along with everyone else, had moments of questioning and moments of uh, doubt and, and, and really uncertainty. And I think that during that, that period of the initial lockdown, the, the, question, the larger question of uncertainty of just not knowing was one of the most difficult things to sit with. There was a feeling, at least in everybody that I spoke with about, the stress of just not knowing what comes next. Those individuals, including myself, my husband and I that owned a brick and mortar studio or business, we were just filled with uncertainty about, you know, what will happen? When can we open? If we can open, will it be safe? Will we contract this virus if we open? Will we, will we be able to teach? And so this was before there was a talk of a vaccine, before there was talk of any potential treatments. It was just this giant unknown. And all we knew is that people, wherever there were hotspots, were suffering um, you know, seriously in terms of, uh, you know, the hospital staff and in terms of people that actually contracted the virus, that there were serious, serious implications. Um, so it was just sitting with this uncertainty. Now, I know that many people during that time who were avid yoga practitioners and avid meditation practitioners, they, many people lost their practices during that time. I speak to so many people that said that they woke up in the morning and just felt this overwhelming feeling of uncertainty and couldn't face it. They couldn't face their mats. They couldn't face 
not having the job, they couldn't face not having the community. So without the community, with the support of the community, it was as though the, 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 the practice also dissipated. And those strong um, you know, patterns that we build of driving to the studio or walking to the studio or taking your you know, um, public transportation to the studio to get to where you go to see the people that you get to see at the time you get to see, that habit had been removed. Not many people um, have a strong home self-practice and it's a very different thing to unroll your mat at home than it is to go to a studio where you have the support of a teacher and you have the community around you and you have that feeling of being around others of like-minded interests. So in that space, I felt it as well. Um, but in that space, I think for me, I've had a home practice for many, many years. So after the time I came back from India for the first time, more than 20 years ago, I started practicing on my own at home. So for me, I felt like I do this anyway, like I would be here practicing at home anyway. Um, you know, so this is what I do anyway. I'm just not getting on a plane Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I, you know, I'm getting more rest than usual. Um, you know, there's a, a lot to, to the, to the great privilege. Uh, there was much more food in my refrigerator than usual, um, because they had told everyone, um, that we would need to stock up. And a friend of Tim's called us from California and said, there's nothing in the supermarket over here. You better shop for three months. And so Tim and so Tim taking his friend's word very seriously rallied us to go to Whole Foods on a Sunday night at around 9 p.m. because I had just gotten back from what was, what was my last the traveling workshop until for a few months and I had just landed and then Tim said we have to go to Whole Foods right now because there's not going to be any more food after today what my friend in California said so we did this like totally spaced out walk through Whole Foods where it was true there was very little things left on the shelves and this was the time when there was no toilet paper available and it was extreme. It was very, it was kind of panic inducing to actually go shopping because there was this question of, well, will we never have rice again? You know, well, well, is this the future? There's only, you know, kale pasta. Like, what if I want regular pasta? This, is that it? Is it just over now? Am I growing my fruits and vegetables? Is this, what is the future? I guess I should buy all the available greens because maybe they don't grow anymore. It was just this kind of, you know, mildly panic inducing, a very expensive visit to Whole Foods. We came back with all this stuff and it didn't fit anywhere and put it away. And I think there's still some of it left, to be honest with you. Um, so, uh, you know, Tim said that he found it very challenging to be at home with all that food. So he said he would make frequent visits to the various cupboards that we'd stored things in to check on the food items and see if they needed to be eaten. And um, you know, during this during this sort of period where we kind of had lost touch with each other, there was a, there was one morning where I, I felt the same thing that perhaps everyone felt, which was a little bit of the unmotivation to practice. This feeling of, well, gosh, I don't really, I don't, I don't really feel that motivated. So I remember getting on the mat and thinking, when am I going to go to Mysore again? When am I going to see my teacher again? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know when will. Will we never go back? Is that it? I remember thinking that. Was that it? And then at the same time, I thought, how glad I am that I've had that opportunity. Even if I never go back, that's a strong foundation. And then I thought, wait a minute, there's a video. And I put on the YouTube video of Batavi Joyce teaching the six Americans. And I put on the primary series. And I was like, it's very slow through the standing poses. Uh, however, just to hear his voice the familiarity of the practice being led through the practice, then I remember feeling, wow, the next day I did second series. And then, however, I started after the standing poses because it's just very slow. And um, just practically speaking, you know, I, I felt that I needed to take some uh, expedient decisions for the course of my life. And, and then I remember doing that and thinking, there is no video of Sharath. So, you know, Shadiji, why doesn't he have a video? There's no video on YouTube of him teaching like lead primary or something like this. And, but uh, he's been, he'd been so against making videos and spoken so publicly about, you know, don't make videos. The practice has to be taught teacher to student, this sort of thing. 
So then I thought, you know what? Let me just send him a message. So I sent him a message and I said, Shadiji, I practiced with your grandfather today uh, on YouTube. Why don't you have any online classes? So many students out there are losing their practice. Why don't you come online and teach a class? And I was expecting like the hammer to come back of like, no, Kino, yoga cannot be online, bad. I was ready for anything. And what I got back was, I would like to try, how do I do it? You know, and then I said, oh, we can do, you know, there's like YouTube live, there's Vimeo live or there's Zoom. And then he wrote back, Zoom, I know what that is. And, and then he said, can you arrange, can we make a test? So we made a test with all the MLC teachers where we did this little test with like 14 people on Zoom. And he was testing out various microphones and various setups and these sorts of things. And, you know, uh, the week after we, we posted the class with him and suddenly, you know, it sold out with a thousand people within like an hour. And that first class where he taught, I felt more connected with the global Ashtanga community than I had in years as though there were these disparate communities having different conversations about one thing or another. And then, you know, just to have that community come online and practice all together, just primary series conference, the very familiar routine of what we all know if we've been to Mysore really just felt like very, very meaningful. Now that was probably the, maybe the pinnacle uh, that, that, that those first couple of classes with him was maybe the pinnacle of that feeling of community, of connection. After that, then some places started to open and it became the different conversations started to arise about how the online world should be. Many more people started teaching online out of necessity. And then there, there were just so many other things that were happening, but that period was very, very special, um, uh, at least as I remember it. And I, I, I also remember this feeling, this, this shift in me of if there had been any place inside of myself where I had taken for granted the wonderful privilege to travel to another city, even a city within you know, my own country, and share the yoga with this group of people to appreciate the newness and the specialness of that, that has completely, completely vanished. I remember my first workshop outside of Miami after some of the travel restrictions got lifted. It was just so special to go and see, you know, a different community, but doing the same practice and some, you know, uh, just some different environments and nature and to really soak it all in was so, so special. And I mean, I, I definitely feel that the practice has been the consistent thread that for me has allowed the, there's a lot of perspective to really be kind of shined on everything through, you know, through the ups and downs. And there were many, many ups and downs. So just speaking practically, uh, we, in terms of our brick and mortar studio, Tim and I faced a lot of obstacles in that regards. We didn't, we couldn't pay rent for the first three months of the lockdown because we had, we basically had very close to zero revenue coming in. And we just told our landlord, look, we can't, like we, we, we don't, we can't pay anything. Um, the online classes we could do were just a fraction of what was happening in person. And when we could reopen, uh, the mayor of Miami had a, a mask mandate, and which basically meant people wouldn't come to yoga class. And there was this weird social distancing thing. So our uh, studio, which had been open for 17 years, has now closed. Of course, that's only half the story. Because in December of 2019, Kino and her husband, Tim, signed a deal on a new space and began construction just as the pandemic was about to let loose. From build-outs to permits to zoning, the whole process ended up being just like everything else during the pandemic. One unpredictable roadblock and delay after another. The perseverance that, we've, that I've learned on my mat was the perseverance that kept me going through these ups and downs, through so much uncertainty, not knowing if enough revenue is going to come in for us to pay our new building or our old landlord, not knowing if you know, there's going to be a workshop happening that's planned on the schedule and just being willing to sit with all of that uncertainty, knowing that the single thing that I have that's consistent is my practice. I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do my, I'm going to sit and I'm going to do my asanas and that's going to be my consistent, persistent practice. And I'm going to do that every day. And then from there, we'll see. 
But no matter where I'm in the world, no matter what's happening, I'm getting on the mat, whatever form or, or shape that takes, that's going to take whatever form or shape that takes. I'm not going to be, and I know, and I, I really am just not, um, uh, someone that holds myself up to some kind of rigid standard. As long as I'm sitting there, that counts. As long as I don't get up from the cushion and open Instagram, that still counts as the sit, even if I'm super distracted and I change positions, you know, once a minute, as long as I didn't leave the cushion for me, that still counts during the time. And the same thing with the yoga mat. I don't need to do, you know, handstand flip flops, uh, crazy postures in order for it to count as a practice. I was there. I was on my mat. I did open prayer. I did what I could do. And that was that. And I think that's just super, super important um, to know that, that that's the consistency, not the achievement element of it. That, and, and that's something I feel that, um, you know, that's years of practice that have helped me realize that. If there's anything that I, I feel has been perhaps the constant thread is, is so much change, so much change, so much swift, radical, world-changing, life-changing, um, you know, shifts. Uh, so many pivots from one thing to another. So many things that we thought would never happen that have happened. So many, uh, you know, foundational, fundamental things that have just been, you know, ripped away. And it takes a very strong sort of spiritual practice, I think, to be willing to sit with all of that change and then not, uh, you know, not kind of co collapse under it. And in some way, the collapsing is, is healthy to a degree, the questioning, you know, and, and, and the, the dismantling of previous norms is very, very healthy. And then the strong spiritual practice is the ability to kind of let that collapse and let that dismantling not just take you down so far. So there's, there, there's, you know, nothing left. So then you essentially can, can use the, the old experiences to build upon the new. I should say also, um, just to complete the story of where we've been, you know, we have, we've fully closed our old location, but we've also fully opened our new location. And, and that's also very exciting. You know, so this new space is also very exciting. So this is also one kind of big monumental change. It was a big, it was a big emotional thing for me to close the door on that old space. You know, um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm so, so grateful to all the people that have put so much of their hearts into that old space, including my parents who, who were very instrumental in helping launch that space. And, you know, my dad passed away a few years ago and I still really missed him. And I felt like when we closed that space that, you know, like he was in there, he would come with some plants and he would come water the plants, you know, um, but also do it in our house. And, and, and you know, uh, and, and I felt like when we closed the door to that space that there was also, well, he'll never be in our new space. You know, there's, there's um, no plants, rooms, water. Uh, and there are plants, but like, he's not going to materialize and water some plants, but, uh, but it was just sort of like, wow, this is, this is another permanent goodbye. There was a finality to it. And okay. Yeah. That, so there was a, a sense of sadness personally for me, a sense of, you know, the end of a cycle and we're never getting this back. You know, and so it's just this, this constant of change at the same time that door had closed. And then this new door is opening that has so many, you know, just so much more to offer, to give. And it's, it's so much more of a collaborative dream, you could say, and it has been built on the foundation of what we've worked on for the last, you know, 17 years. And, and, and so even though it's, you know, out of the old, then there's the new, there's still this sense of loss. And I think that that's part of the spiritual practice is being willing to embrace the loss while seeing the new, not, and, and, and sort of the opposite of spiritual practice is to pretend that the loss isn't there and just focus on the new and be, you know, positive without the shadow. But that's not, that's not how I experience the practice. It's, well, there's the grief and the loss and the pain, and there's the hope and the renewal and the promise of a new dawn, but we can't ignore you know, the shadow uh, that stands, that stands in front or that stands behind, depending on where we are in our, in our, um, our journey. Yeah, but that was well said. I think that our tendency is to, we want to be optimistic or we want to choose the other and we can get stuck on one or the other. And it's, it's, it's different to hold both and to acknowledge both and to accept both and to honor both. Yeah, no, definitely. And the other thing that I've, I've noticed has been very difficult for, 
many students is that there seems to be guilt. There's a lot of guilt and shame about um, I lost my practice and I'm not the same size that I used to be and I'm not as strong as I used to be and, you know, I'm not as flexible as I used to be and, you know, and then some people have had COVID. So then they're saying, well, I still have impacts from it. So I just can't do as much as I did before. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of guilt and shame around that. And I would just encourage anybody feeling that to let yourself off the hook, acknowledge the guilt and shame, but forgive yourself at the same time and question, where is that coming from? You know, what a great opportunity to dismantle the um, systemic uh, this is the, you know, the systemic oppression that is perpetuated by the dominant culture than to embrace, you know, the body as it is, as it's aging, as it's changing shape, as it's, you know, um, you know, going through what it needs to go through. What a great opportunity to, uh, to challenge that within yourself. If you have a practice, if you normally are used to doing full primary series and lifting up and jumping back and binding your wrists and all this sort of stuff, what a wonderful opportunity to turn primary series into a restorative practice and, and do that instead and then and see what that does to the mind. I've, and and I, I've encouraged many students to, to, to really embrace that during, during these times, to question where does the guilt come from? Where does the shame come from? What's it about? Because it's usually tied to a sense of identity and personality as being earned by what we what we do or being tied to self-worth being tied to what we can achieve, what we look like, what the size and shape of our body is for, um, you know, for people who identify as female. It can very much be tied to a feeling of perpetual youth and a, a sense of beauty that's, you know, hooked into mainstream and dominant narratives of what that, what that appears to be. So what, what better place to question that than within your own body and within your own practice and to, you know, deconstruct those, those systems within. Um, many people have read about that, about, you know, that this, that this is something that needs to be done in, you know, the mainstream culture and magazines and to question narratives and to dismantle systemic structures of oppression but the, the sort of wake up moment is when we realize, oh, I have like, that's in me. And I participate in that when I judge myself. Oh, I participate in that when I speak these words of guilt and shame, when I carry that around. And at the same time, it's totally a, a valid form of self, self-care and self-love to want the body to be healthy, to want your body to feel good, to want to look good. Like this is all okay. And at the same time, we can recognize that some of the, the feelings that we have about not fitting the mold, especially if we once did fit the mold stem from uh, that, that same sort of, the same sort of systemic types of oppression that, have been that we may have been complicit in in the past, and and, and it's again a great opportunity to deconstruct those 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 the, those myths, I would say, and along the lines, particularly in the Ashtanga world, um, one of the things that uh, people in another time, you know, would uh, start to poke fun at me or question with me and definitely maybe send the Ashtanga police at me about is the introduction of various props, including, you know, chairs and bolsters and blocks and these sorts of things into the practice. And, you know, my last book was called Get Your Yoga On and actually had many, many different options. And I'm currently working on an accessible Ashtanga book that will actually present uh, accessible and adaptive options for uh, postures and primary and some of second series. And then uh, in a, in a, I feel like the conversation in some ways has shifted away from you have to hold your toe in Trikonasana uh, to how can we make triangle pose accessible for everyone who steps in the room. I think it's a very important shift within the Ashtanga world. Um, and if we get stuck in these rigid dogmas, then this does nothing more than perpetuate that, you know, uh, another form of, of privilege, which is which is what's called, you know, the, the privilege of ableism, which those who are physically able to perform high levels of asanas and they get sort of prioritized and valued. And those individuals who are not physically able, they get devalued. And that that's definitely something that needs to be questioned within the Ashtanga world. And one of the ways we can do that is by presenting you know, accessible and adaptive options for the postures as equally valid 
Kino has always taught in a way that's inclusive and welcoming. In fact, much of Ashtanga Yoga's rise in popularity is likely thanks to her influence. But now, with OMSTARS as her platform and a captive audience thanks to COVID, Kino seemed to deliberately take advantage and use as an opportunity to change the narrative from Ashtanga as an exclusive practice for the athletic and able-bodied to everyone is welcome and anyone can practice. No, definitely. I feel that the, that, that, you know, the narrative is something that we each control and we as teachers have the ability to sort of play an active role in what type of narrative gets shifted to front and center. And one of the reasons that I founded OMSTARS is because when I took my idea to create a yoga centric um, platform to some of the larger players in the online streaming uh, industry, everybody turned me down. Um, so I created OMSTARS to be a space that would truly embrace, uh, you know, yoga in its totality. And one of the things that became very, very evident to me was that there needs to be a very strong and intentional and activist approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if yoga is to be liberation for all beings, you know, if, if, if may all beings be happy and free is really what we aim for the yoga practice, then we have to do what we can to make that world. And, and at the very least to set the bar extremely low as yoga teachers, what is kind of like the least, the, the, the least that we can do is present images of yoga that are truly inclusive to all. And if we exist in the online space, which is something that I do and something that we do at OMSTARS, then we need to prioritize that and bring in teachers of various backgrounds, of, of various shapes and sizes, and, 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 and to present that. And not only to have, um, you know, uh, a specialist or a, a, a token representation, but to have true depth in the presentation of accessibility and adaptability. And at the same time, this is this is something that, that I, I genuinely believe is that, that is that there needs to be the full spectrum presented. So sometimes what I feel is that we that the teachers get pigeonholed into do you teach handstands and lift up and deep back bends, you're a contortion teacher, and that's what you do. It's when you do that, and then you get known for that. Or you do accessibility with like you know a lot of props and chairs, and you're in that corner. And then it's like, well, why are we separating? You know, I feel like I want to be able to take one asana and teach that asana to someone who needs it to be adapted to them in some way that I haven't thought of before. And then I want to be able to show that same asana with a chair, with a block. And then I want to show a deepening option for that student who does have the physical potential to, you know, go as deep as possible. Great. I want to show the full spectrum and I want to value each equally because the value is tied to the worth of the student as the individual. So one of the things like the phrases that I start to use is find out how you can do the work, you know, find out how, how you can do the work. Are you working? What are you working? What are you feeling? What are you doing? And if you're doing that, you're doing yoga. But if you're just mindlessly putting your leg behind your head, it's not really doing it. You're not really working. It's mindlessly, any mindless action, whether it's on a chair or in a handstand is really not in service of the yoga practice. So find how you can work. You know, they say statistically speaking, just in terms of picking up new habits, that the average human being won't stick with something that they feel very bad at. And I say the average human being, because of course there are the outliers that, you know, they feel, they, they, they feel that they're a total failure at it and then they keep showing up. I may be one of those outliers. That was a complete failure when I started Ashtanga. I couldn't do anything. I kept like, this is awesome. I failed at this for an hour and a half. Come back the next day and do that for three years before you feel somewhat decent. But most people, they say, when they feel like that after two or three tries, they just don't come back. So this is why accessibility and inclusion is important because we need to have a path that we believe in. So we need it to be enough challenge. So we feel like oh, that was, I can work, but not so much challenge. We leave feeling deflated. We need to have maybe not someone that's like checks off all the boxes for us. So like maybe we don't need someone that's our age, our skin color, our size, our shape, our religion, our socioeconomic background, our gender. You know, our level of strength, our level of flexibility is too much. Like then we need what a clone that we can follow around. This is this. No, but we need someone that checks off enough of those boxes so we can kind of believe that we can do it too, you know? And if there aren't those teachers yet 
in the world or in our local community, then I kind of think it's the responsibility of the leaders to kind of find those, nurture those and grow those. And that's that we've taken a very intentional, intentional act at, at, at OMSARS. So thank you for noticing that. We, we, yeah, it's very important to us. I shared with Kino how special it was to be a part of her first class at the Miami Garage and how it really made me miss the support of a community. It's, it's so special and it's so special to have, you know, um, like I'm touched that you joined those classes and so, so special. And it's also so special when we see students that walk in that say, you know, they say, you know, like OMSAR saved my practice during the pandemic. And, you know, I practice with you every day. And some students, they want to join the live classes and like get the feedback. And then I have some students that come up and say, I just do that one quarter primary series every day. And I'm like, you know, there's some other options. Like I did another, I don't care. I just do that one every day. I just like what you say in that one. It's just sort of like my home. I just do that every day. I know how long it takes. I fit it in, I schedule in. I don't need any other videos. And I was like, I could just send you a DVD like at this point, you know what I mean? But like, no, I have it there. Just save the there. I just do that every day. And you know, that's very much Ashtangis. Like we kind of don't, we don't really need variety. We're like, it's just, okay, that, that works. Just do that every day. It's fine. Um, and then like two years later, I guess I'll move on to have primary, you know? But uh, uh, one of the things that I think is very interesting is this notion of inclusivity. So if we can get out of the boxes that we put ourselves in, like I'm in this camp and you're in that camp and I'm for the guru model, I'm against the guru model and I'm for inclusivity and I'm for, I'm against, I'm for handstands and we shouldn't do handstands or we, we should do this or don't know, don't catch your ankles or catch your ankles. And then it's just like, ah! You know, it starts to be like all these different boxes and it's like, wait a minute, we can't really make rules. And so if we go all the way back to the MISO style method and we go all the way back to think not, think not even 10 years ago, think or 20 years ago, think 30 years ago, think before any Western students ever really uh, found the Ashtanga method. And then, and then think of what Krishnamacharya was teaching. And we really see this individualized approach to the practice of come in and, and, and practice. Okay, this is, better for, this is good for you. Okay, this is not good for you. Don't do that. Do this other thing instead. And then we, we see that, oh, this is, it's teacher, this is what the teacher-student relationship is. This is the guru-shisha tradition. This is why it's important to have a teacher because if you're just out there on your own trying to figure out what you should do, there's a lot of questions and we can get lost within the maze of our mind. So it's not that like we need this guru-worship model but it's very, very useful to have deferential authority, which is someone to ask a question. Well, what should I do? I don't understand. You know, is this triangle pose? Am I, you know, where should I put my foot? And, and then to have that answer be um, collaborative rather than the foot shall be here from now and forevermore. And it's like, like we're not like Roman proclamations that then get, you know, that get anyhow get eaten away by the test of time. And that's never how the, 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 that old version of the Mysore style, you could say the original version of that teacher-student relationship, the guru-shisha relationship is a relationship. You know, uh, oh, how does that feel? Does that work for you? Oh, this is working. Does that work? And, and that's something that I think is very important for people to think about in this, you know, in this, in this day and age is that that relationship with the teacher is still important, that as we're questioning the role of the teacher, that at the same time, you know, deferential authority is one of the things that I think is extremely important to the, to the student's journey. And then anybody that's going to claim authority as the teaching voice to understand that it's collaborative, that, you know, you're, and, and, and this has been a, a change in me as well. That's happened over, you know, just experience and years of practice to not assume that I know better than the student. So for example, I was just teaching a week of Mysore style here. And there was a student that I thought, you know, Hey, I think she can do dropbacks. I wonder why she's not doing dropbacks. So instead of just saying, you know, now let's drop back. I said, have you ever considered doing dropbacks? Are you interested in that? And how do you feel? Is that something interesting? And then she, she said, okay, I'll think about it. And the next day I totally forgot. And then she had this excited look in her eyes and she was like, I want to try that backbending thing. <laughs> like, okay, let's try that backbending thing. And she was really excited and good at it. And, you know, it was a really fun moment. And then what I would ask her after every time, you know, do you have one more? Do you want to stop? Like we did one, we don't have to do three. They're supposed to be three, but we don't have to do three. You're good. She's like, I want to do another one. Okay. Now, so it was a three. She, was, she gave me these eyes. Like she wanted to do a fourth one. I was like, no, no, now let's just take it easy. Like let's do it tomorrow. You know, so, and, and then the next day she said, you know, I'm feeling a little tired. So, so 
So, so, so that collaborative space between teacher and student, I think is kind of just an important context um, within, within our tradition. Speaking of tradition, what direction does Kino see ours as a global yoga community headed now, thanks to COVID? One of the things I think that the pandemic put a big break on is sort of like the yoga teacher factories of the world. And I think that there were suddenly many questions of, well, do I want to do teacher training? So there were these sort of, you know, teacher training factories where we're just people are coming in. And I think it put big breaks on that because then there was this question of, wait, is this like, so suddenly people couldn't see a career path. And, and I think that's good because I don't necessarily think people should see a career path in yoga. I think that people should practice yoga and because they can't not practice yoga. And then after years of practice, then it starts to be so much in your worldview and so much a part of who you are that you can't help but teaching. And, and I think, I think that that was a good thing. And I'd love to see that continue. I'd love to see um, the global community of yogis value people that have devoted their, their lives to the practice of yoga. And I'd, I'd love to see a, 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 a more um, respectful nod at, to the origin culture of India uh, within the broader scope of uh, yoga in the global space. I think Ashtanga yoga is very particular in the sense that we center um, our relationship with our, you know, our, our, our teachers in Mysore. At the same time, Globally, the famous teachers outside of our, you know, our, our gurus, you could say, in, in, in Mysore are um, not, not always of Indian origin. So then, then, there, then there's a question as well of um, who, who are we elevating and who are we, who are we holding up as representatives of the lineage? And, and, and there are questions along those lines. Um, but at the same time, within Ashtanga, we constantly point back to the, to the origin culture. And this, I think, is very special within the Ashtanga community, um, as opposed to some styles of yoga that maybe have, have, have removed and stripped away some of the more um, traditionally Hindu elements of the practice to make it more sellable, palatable, commodified in a global uh, Judeo-Christian uh, universe um, or worldview, you could say. So I think that going forward, I hope that six the questioning of do I, why am I taking teacher training, you know, and what's that about for me? Uh, and, and would it be better for me to just take an immersion so that I can get deeper into my practice? Like, is that really what I'm looking for? And so I, I think the student's journey hopefully can be sparked well, and, and that spark will stay lit. Um, there is a lot of discussion about, you know, yoga in a post lineage world. And I just wonder if too much emphasis on, the idea of the space around us being past the lineage is a form of cultural appropriation as though we are cutting the ties to the origin culture of yoga. I don't know if we can ever be post lineage. Um, and from what I understand that that term was actually uh, designed not so much as a clipping off of the lineage, but the idea that a lineage can, can evolve as a collaboration of peers um, and I think what's gone on is that phrase or what, what's happened is that phrase has been adopted as kind of a, 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 a 180 degree about face with many people disavowing various lineages and many people um, saying that they will never do a lineage based practice again. Um, and, and, and I think that that's that there's a middle ground that can be both and rather than either or. We can observe the harms that have been perpetuated and committed in, 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 in the power structures of absolute authority and at the same time still honor the, the lineage, the family tree, you could say, of yoga, tracing back and honoring the origins and, and the Hindu origins of yoga. Um, and I think that that's, that that's, that's important. I hope that going forward, there's more elevation of consciousness, that there is an evolution that's happened in some degrees, and that that evolution can uh, re-inspire students that might feel that there's no place for them. Those students who have had injuries, those students who have um, maybe uh, fallen off the path, um, 
and those students who are brand new, who perhaps can learn a totally new paradigm that can learn that the asanas are tools for, 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 for liberation rather than tools to gain approval. And I hope that that, that that continues. And I think that we place sometimes too much, too much expectation on the one leader. You know, we seem to place all of our eggs in one basket and then, and then question, well, why didn't they all hatch? And I think that perhaps what we're, what we're realizing is that if we want a sense of true inclusivity is that we need to spread those eggs around and I don't need eggs. So they're all going to hatch as chickens. So be absolutely clear about that. Um, so if we want all the, the eggs to hatch, then we can't just put them all in one place and then be like, oh, you know, why do I have an omelet when I wanted a bunch of chickens? So then we could, we could put all the eggs around and, and, and share so, so that there's a sharing. I was speaking with, um, with an Ashtanga teacher today uh, who, whose name is Marcos from Brazil. And he says that one of the things that he was very, very present to is that there is an, an individualistic capitalist framework that seems to underlie so much of our discussion of spirituality so that so many people are on an individual journey and they follow that individual path and ultimately um, commodify it. So they go on their individual path and then they get individual experiences and then they brand themselves as an individual, which fits very well within the uh, Western kind of capitalist structure. However, um, perhaps there's a way to be more communal and more inclusive and less competitive and less, um, you know, and less on that, 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 that kind of individual track and more of a sense of uplifting a, a communal track. And I'm not sure how we, how we do that, but I think it's, it's extremely important for, for us to be thinking about it. And I think, I think that in and of itself is the, is the birth of, of perhaps a new paradigm that we'll only see in retrospect some years out. You know, Megan and I have been fortunate to have spent time with Kino over the years, getting to know her both as a teacher and a person. And we've always appreciated her candor along with her humor. She is fiercely devoted, but without taking herself too seriously. And so she's always been a leader within the community, but without ever fully assuming the role. But I have to say, this was a side I hadn't really seen. And yet I always knew it was there. This was a woman stepping into her power and ready to use it to bring forth a change that's been long overdue. You know, I, I recognize and acknowledge that I sit in, in, in positions of power and privilege, you know, and so I've benefited from that. So then the question that anybody who sits in any, any position of privilege is, how am I using this privilege? You know, and, and am I willing to, 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 to do the work to dismantle those systems that maybe have lifted me up, but have, but have oppressed others? And, 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 and it really is risky, you know, because you may, you, you risk losing the position or power or privilege. And so I think, I think that's an important thing to do, but if we're, if we're here to find the path of happiness for all beings, it's, I think very, very important. One of the things that, um, uh, one of the things I think is a very useful investigation is the question of justice, you know? what does justice look like for someone in a position of power? What does justice look like for someone uh, who's marginalized? And I think they're different, you know, and I think, I think they're different. Um, and I think there are different actions that can be taken and to recognize privilege, to recognize the privilege that we sit with. You know, I mean, I, 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 I fully recognize that, um, the, one of the reasons that people started listening to me was because I had an advanced asana practice. And, you know, that suddenly, because I could do this crazy looking posture, people were interested in taking a class with me and they were, they were willing to listen to what I had to say about all sorts of various other things. And, and then at some moment, I really, I realized that this false equivalence between, you know, the physical, physical attainment and spiritual practice needs to be deconstructed. And if that needs to be deconstructed, then we need to question so much more. So it's just been a, a constant work. Um, and I think that that work of unlearning and the work of dismantling power structures is, is very, uh, it's very closely tied to, if not 
the core work of what liberation means, you know? So if we again go back to the traditional teaching, if we just take the opening prayer that we say over and over every day, you know, Patanjali is the one with the, who promises the way to um, have the cure to the poison of conditioned existence. So what is that poison other than, you know, systemic uh, oppression and institutional uh, structures of power that keep down those who are marginalized, whether that marginalization comes from skin color, religion, gender, economic, uh, socioeconomic status, or, or any other of the intersections that we face and, and, and live with as human beings. So I think this is core. This is kind of the core of our, of our work, you know, and it happens inside and outside and the inside mirrors the outside. So we keep going, we keep going, you know, I'm just a person on the path. And if people come and listen to me and they take some benefit from that, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm ever grateful. And I'm, and I am, you know, grateful to all of the, the, the students and the teachers who are on the path with me and that I've learned from. And I think together we are making a change. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Before you go, Peg and I wanted to share with you an exciting project we're offering throughout this year called The Path, a unique practice space that includes a monthly journal with writings and recipes, ideas for home practice, and a live online gathering to connect and support. With female archetypes as our guides, each month we will explore various aspects of the yoga practice in a way that invokes a more feminine perspective. You can subscribe for an annual membership or choose the months that you would like to attend. We hope you'll join us on the path. The Ashanga Dispatch podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by Peg Queen, along with me, Megan Powell. Music is by Mark Pilly.